Good morning. Happy Easter. <laughs> um, scripture this morning is John twenty eleven through 23. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and one at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that, she had, that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you, are, if you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. All right. Thank you very much. Good morning, everybody. He is risen. Car, like, like 10 of you knew that. All right. That means most of you didn't grow up in the church, so we're doing something right. Good to see you. I count it as a win. All right. But anyways, it's, it's sort of like the Star Wars thing. May the force be with you and also with you. But it's like, he is risen. He is risen indeed. So that's how it goes for future reference. I can try it again. He is risen. Ah, oh, see? I'm back at my childhood church now. Okay, good. And I'm wearing a suit. Okay, anyways. Okay. Uh, we're doing something a little different today because it is Easter. We've been going through the book of Matthew for uh, a couple of years here and there, um, give or take a year or two. And, and uh, today I'm going to sum up a whole bunch of things that we have talked about really over the last six to eight months. And they're all going to come into play um, as I tell the story of the Imago Day through the scriptures. Um, and it's going to end right here at this passage. And by the time we get there, I think you'll read this passage in a different way because John is doing something here that his original audience knew exactly what it was, and we tend to miss it because, again, um, we are 2,000 years separated from this thing. So we need to get into the text. We need to get into the ancient mindset and read this. So uh, my name's Tommy, by the way. Glad to see some of you. I saw you at Christmas. Good to see you again. <laughs> and uh, I'll see you again this Christmas. We can catch up for a few minutes in between. Um, so I'll open us up in a word of prayer, and, uh, and let's do this, shall we? Father... Thank you for this place and these people. I, uh, I, I, I'm forever grateful for, uh, for these ancient writings and these words and the, um, the people who followed you and, and wrote down their experiences 
and protected them and passed them on so that we could, could gather here today and, uh, and try and make sense of, of what they were going through, what they were enduring, the hope that they found in this story and what it can mean for us today. And uh, I ask that you would enlighten us. I ask that you would show us something new. Um, make us feel like we are at home with our family right now. Um, that we are um, together when we come together, one people. We are your people. Uh, we are the body of Christ. And let us understand uh, even more so this morning what all of this means as we, as we celebrate the resurrection, this anomaly 2,000 years ago. I ask that you would give us a fresh perspective on it. Thank you, Father. In your name, amen. Okay, now, I, I actually earlier this week preached at a revival. That happened. And uh, it ruined me forever for preaching. I just want you to know that. Everyone was loud and boisterous and noisy. It was the greatest thing. I'd be talking, and they'd be like, say it again. I'd be like, I don't remember what I just said. Hold on. <laughs> I was the awkward one, but man, it was great. Okay, so um, here we go. Uh, I'm a history guy. Um, it's my favorite thing in the world, um, and uh, and we're going to do some of this this morning because when you when you understand the ancient sort of Akkadian, uh, Sumerian, ancient texts uh, that were going on, especially the uh, the creation narratives that they were telling, it sheds a lot of light on what exactly Israel was doing with their creation story. So, in the ancient world, one of the things that you would do when you were building a pagan temple, an ancient temple to your god that you believed in and wanted to and you wanted that God to stay with you and protect you, you would build a temple, and that temple would be built um, within a massive garden. And you would build this garden um, always in measurements of, oh, by the way, um, we always have people looking for seats. Again, if once in a while, if you have more than one or two, raise your hand and, and wave people over, because we have people looking for seats. This is probably our last year of two services. Probably have to go to three. This morning, there was even more people at the first one. So, um, let's, uh, okay. So you're building a temple in the ancient world, a pagan temple, and they always built them for various reasons I'm not going to go into, but they built them in measurements of six. So maybe you would cut all the stones and you would stack them all and you would build the temple in six days, or maybe you would build it in six weeks, maybe you would build it in six years, but it was always six. You would get a space and you would furnish it and you would carve it out and you would plant all the, um, all the garden plants um, and you would furnish it with animals and fruit trees and it would be a place where you believed your God was going to dwell among the creation. And it was, it was the only place in the world where this God would really, in person, sort of be present where you could meet with this God, right? Um, and the reason it's the only place you could meet with this God was because there would be idols there that you would make. Um, these idols would be brought in on the sixth day. Um, and these idols would usually, typically, from, from what we see, um, everything was carved on the idols, um, some of them were small. Some of them were you could hold in your hand. Some of them were, you know, three stories. Um, so some, uh, from what we know, uh, most of the time, the eyes and the ears would not be carved, and they would bring in these, these idols, and the priest would gather his tools, and he would stand there, and he would carve them. He would carve out the eyes, and he would carve out the ears. And then he would do a spiration ceremony. He would breathe on, on and, and breathe into um, the idol, um, they call it a spiration center. It comes from the, the, the root word there, I guess, is like spirit, right? You're breathing the spirit of life into these idols. Um, they'd be made of clay or sand or um, some sort of rock, something from the earth. And you would breathe life into them and you would place them in the garden. There's always three steps. Um, you would breathe life into them. Um, you would place them in the garden. Um, and you would always form it from the earth. So, so these three particular things. Now, 
Um, in the ancient world, wherever this God was, this idol was, um, God was there. They called these things the imago Dei, the image of God, the image of whatever God that you wanted it to be. And where this idol was is where God was in your mind. This is how the ancient sort of spirituality worked. Um, so you have people like Alexander the Great, right? Uh, a great conqueror. He's so great that he even wore t-shirts with his own face on them. And he, he conquered far and wide. Um, and as you read some of the ancient literature of Alexander the Great coming down from Mesopotamia, he comes through Tyre and Sidon. He conquers all of these cities and replaces their idols. He would bring out their priests and their idols. He would defrock the priests and replace their garments with his garments that, that for his God. He would replace their God with his God. His God was Apollo. So Apollo would be the new God wherever he conquered. And they would now worship they would now have the privilege of worshiping Apollo other than their other gods, who obviously were worthless because they couldn't protect them against the great god Apollo. So, um, Alexander the Great would, would bring with him not just an army, but a massive statue of Apollo. And they would set it up, and they would bring it even into battle with them. You see this even in scriptures here and there, that the gods, even the Israelites brought the Ark of the Covenant. Um, you would see people bringing their, their idols into battle, um, and there's one particular writing that we have of Alexander, about, uh, about Alexander the Great that he comes to a city and they, they set up camp for the evening and they're getting ready to attack in the morning. And someone in the camp, maybe an advisor or whatever, has a dream. And dreams in the ancient world were very important. They had intense meaning. They were messages from the gods. And so he had this dream that Apollo arose and left them and walked away. And he goes to Alexander and he tells them this story. And, and they're like, oh, no. So they grab a whole bunch of rope and twine and they go out and they tie up the statue that is with them. They tie the whole thing up, head to toe, and then they tie it to a cart and they fasten this cart to the earth so that it can't go anywhere. The statue cannot be moved. And this sounds a little crazy because it's a bunch of rock and sand that they carved into the shape of a statue. But it's not crazy if you realize in the ancient world what they believed. They believed that where the image of the God is, God is there. That is where God is. And if the image leaves them, if it gets taken away, their God has left them. Remember how the Israelites felt when the Ark of the Covenant was captured and taken away. Okay? Like, when you're carving, your idol is gone, you lose your God. Okay? This is how important these things were. Now, let's um, turn on your Bibles and, and go to Genesis chapter 2, verse 7 and 8. It says something very important. It says, then the, Lord your God, uh, then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man that he had formed. Now, if you were an ancient uh, person reading this text, or sitting around a campfire hearing it told, or standing in the square or outside the temple as, or the tabernacle as your leaders declared the story and read it from the ancient scrolls, you would know exactly what is happening in this story. This is, not a, uh, this, is, this is not somebody trying to state a whole bunch of facts about science or whatever. This is somebody making a statement about who you are and what you are doing here. This is somebody saying, by the way, just so you understand your role in this place, you are the image of God and God's people have a particular job unlike anyone else. Everyone else has these, has these idols that they're going to make and they point to them and say, that's what God looks like. That is not you. You are not to take part in this kind of stuff. And then that's how Israel's story begins. And as you move forward, what you begin to see is um, 
you see God gathering his people, creating a people in a way that is incredibly unique and giving them a job that is incredibly unique in the world. You see this guy, his name is Abram. Later on, he becomes Abraham, the founder of, 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 of Judaism, of Christianity. And as we go, as you read this passage, um, you see God calling him into the world in a totally different way than anyone else does. It says, um, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Um, so, I'm going to pause there for a second because Abraham, where he was, was in an ancient sort of Sumerian culture. They had their own gods that they worshipped. And in this ancient world, it was very, very tribal. Every tribe existed for their own benefit and their own good. And every tribe was a threat to every other tribe out there. So the existence of another tribe was a threat to you. And so they were regularly warring and trying to wipe each other off the, off the map and erase each other's history and pretend like each other never existed after they slaughtered them all. Um, this was how the ancient world was, and it was terrifying and awful. But in this world, God called one person, Abraham, and he says, I want you to leave this place. You're going to leave your gods. You're going to leave um, the things you believe. You're going to leave your community. You're going to go off into the wilderness, into the wasteland, which nobody did. And there's no God there. There's nobody out there. Gods were ge- geographical. They had places. They had cities. They had mountaintops. There's nobody out there. And God leads him out. He goes, you're going to go to the place I'm going to show you. So he doesn't even know where he's going. And then he gets there, um, and he says, I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. I'm going to make you into a new people in this world. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. So not only, like, yes, in the ancient tribal mindset, you're going to conquer these people, but it's going to be in a sense that they're actually going to be blessed and become a part of you. This is going to be different. This is not about violence and, and wiping everyone else out. Um, and through your offspring, all nations of the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. So he's creating a new kind of people which did not exist in the ancient world. And after he does this, um, he gathers them together and he gives them a specific law, a, a whole set of laws called the Torah. And these laws are fascinating because they don't align with ancient laws that already existed. Some of them, the setup is similar. The way they're written is similar to like the Code of Hammurabi. There's ancient laws that looked really similar, but you can tell that theirs is different. It points to something else. Um, Exodus 12 and Leviticus 24 both say, there shall be one law for the native and for the alien who resides among you. So one law, not two laws. You're not higher than them. When an immigrant moves in amongst you and dwells with you, they will be treated as equals and the same as you. You are not better than them. You will be considered equals. Exodus 22 says, you shall not wrong or oppress the resident alien for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. So he says, the reason you're going to do this is because I did this for you. And so this action is going to be something that directly reflects the way I saved you. You did not belong to me and I took you in and I welcomed you and I provided for you and raised you and made you my people, even though you were not my people. And then Leviticus 19 and 23, it says, um, you shall not strip your vineyards bare, leave them for the poor and the alien. So um, when you're harvesting your crops, Note that everything is not existing for you and for your benefit. It is for everyone. And so when you harvest your crops, you're going to leave some around in the edges and the poor are going to know uh, where they can go get some food to eat so that they may live. And the immigrant, the resident alien or the immigrant passing through um, will be able to see, will be able to have food and be provided for because travel was incredibly dangerous in the ancient world. You are here to bless everyone else. Why? Because I blessed you when you were not mine and you did not deserve it and I made you mine. And so as I lived, you will live. And then they receive another command that says, do not make any graven images. Okay, now this is a big one because it's a really fascinating one because the graven images, again, were the images of the gods. You are not to make an image and set it up 
Um, I would also argue you are not to sort of um, do it in metaphor, like you're not going to write, here's what God is like, here's what, here's what God, you're not going to carve, here's what God is like and set it over there and then stand apart from it in points. That's what God is like. Don't look at me. That's what God is like because I am not like God. Um, but God is loving and gentle and he's forgiving and merciful. And you make something else and you take your entire point of existing and you put it on something else and say, that's what God is like. No, no, no. When you do this, when you make a craven image and you set it up and you say, here's what God looks like, in any form, however you want to like bring that into reality, when you do that, you are basically committing vocational suicide. Like you're, you're quitting your own job. This is what you were created to be. Where you are present, I will be present. When people look at you, they will see me. When people communicate with you and interact with you, they will receive the things that they will receive when they interact with me. You are my presence in the world. God's people is God's presence. That is how all of Israel viewed themselves and how they were supposed to live. Um, and if you look, uh, even in the New Testament, you can look at, look at people like Paul sort of references, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. Paul is picking up the same language and saying, we, when we enter into a space, are ambassadors for Jesus. And when we stand there, people should look at us and see what Christ is like. Um, as if God were making his appeal through us, as if God were saying, uh, hey, um, that is not the path of Jesus. That is not the path of justice and mercy. Here's what we ought to be doing as human beings. Even when everyone, when everyone is against you and you stand up and you do this and you speak justice and you speak righteousness and you speak forgiveness and mercy, um, you are doing this on God's behalf. He's making his appeal through you. That is how important it is that human beings, that Christians, that God's people represent God and Jesus in this world. Are you with me? Are we awake? All right. This is way different than earlier this week. Okay. Now, okay. So um, as the story goes, we begin to see Israel failing at this over and over and over. And as they fail and as they fail and as they fail, they, they constantly are committing idolatry. And, and, and God just speaks to them and says, you're basically committing adultery is what you're doing. Like I made you to be mine and, and you are reflecting these other kings and these other gods and you're worshiping them and you're doing their bidding and their work. And now the world looks at you and they think I look like you. They think I look like you. And then Ezekiel gets this word from God and God says, I want you to remind them about how we met. Can we do this? Can you remind them about how we met? And here's what Ezekiel says. He says, your ancestry, it's God now talking to, the, to his own people, the Israelites. Your ancestry and birth were in the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother was a Hittite. Basically, he's saying, um, you were a nobody and you were mixed race and nobody claimed you as their own, is what he's saying. In the ancient world, like this was not something you wanted to be. He says, I made a people out of two different people, and this doesn't make any sense, but this is what I did. Um, On the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to make you feel clean, nor were you rubbed with salt or wrapped in cloths. No one looked on you with pity or had compassion enough to do any of these things for you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field, for on the day you were born, you were despised. Now, what is happening here? So... The ancient world, uh, up until not too long ago, was very patriarchal. Um, People wanted sons. Because when you have a son, you have somebody that you can pass your stuff to, um, somebody to carry on your name, tell your story. They can own property. They can can serve on boards and councils and stuff like that. Um, Women could not. Women couldn't own property. Women basically were property in the ancient world. And they could be bought and sold and traded off. Um, 
And so oftentimes we, have, we find these ancient papyri written from Roman soldiers to like a, their wife and she's pregnant and they're in love and he writes her a letter and says, I'm so happy our child is due soon. If it's a daughter, go ahead and expose it. If it's a son, keep it. Like, and, and if it's not, we'll try again. And exposing it basically means taking it, throwing it outside. And the Christians would, would walk around the cities at night, um, and they would go to the Roman Colosseum where people would abandon babies, and they would take all these babies, these little girls, and they would bring them all home, and they would raise them up into godly women, which ended up causing a massive army of godly women in the church, amen, right, which did amazing things in the first century, right? Now, most of which has been ignored by men writers of history. Anyways, um, <laughs> so, no one took, so that's what's happening here. He's saying, I saw you, your cord wasn't even wasn't even cut. You, you were thrown out to die. Nobody wanted you. This is how he's describing. You were, you were low class. You were unwanted. You were mixed race, birth. Like, like the world had rejected you, but I saw you. And then, and then the next verse says this. Then I passed by and I saw you kicking about in your blood. And as you lay there in your blood, I said to you, live. And I made you grow like a plant of the field. So God enters in and he saves this person. Basically, he takes an unwanted Person and he turns them into this beautiful, wonderful, um, thriving, growing creature. And as we get going, um, he does even more because then he raises her up. Uh, he speaks now. This is the point where Israel starts to be talked of um, in the feminine perspective and as a bride. And so God um, is speaking to Israel and he says, um, and not just this, I raised you up into something special. Um, I saw you and I wanted you to inherit everything that I had. So I, when, you, when you were grown, I made you my wife. Now, today that's a little awkward to raise somebody and then marry them. Of course, we, look, we don't do this. But in the ancient world, the honor that this was, the gift that it was to an unwanted person is amazing. And here's how the text reads. He says, I spread the corners of my garments over you and covered your naked body. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the sovereign Lord, and you became mine. I bathed you with water and washed the blood from, blood from you uh, and put ointments on you. I clothed you with an embroidered dress and put sandals of fine leather on you. I dressed you in fine linen and covered you with costly garnet, garments. I adorned you with jewelry. I put bracelets on your arms and a necklace around your neck. I put a ring in your nose so that you were a hipster now. And, and I, earrings <laughs> in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Uh, so you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothes were of fine linen and costly fabric and embroidered cloth. Um, I made you my queen. And from this point on, he talks about her as if she is his queen. And it's this beautiful depiction of how, what exactly God did for his people to bring them to the place and, and put them in the position that they were in to now represent God as ambassadors. But then there's another conversation because the very next passage, Ezekiel has a vision. He has a vision of the temple and God is standing, God has exited the Holy of Holies and God is standing at the threshold. And Ezekiel is standing there and he's watching God, and they have a conversation, and God looks at Ezekiel, and he says, should I stay or should I go? What are we going to do here? My people no longer look like me. They haven't in some time, and every time they come back, and they fashion, I fashion them back in my image again, they, they just, they wander off. I have made them my bride, my wife. I have made them my queen to rule over everything in compassion and love, to bless everyone in the world. I have made them everything any human being could ever want to be. 
And they go out and they lift their skirts for their enemies. That's how he describes it. He calls them, you've prostituted yourself to these other gods and you look like them and you've adorned yourself in their treasures and riches and you want the world to look at you and see them. I don't know what to do anymore. Should I stay or should I go? And, And Ezekiel says that he saw the presence of God arise from the top of the temple and fly away and disappear. And God left. And there was nothing for 400 years from God. Not a movement of the Spirit, um, not a single sign of his presence, nothing. And they finished rebuilding the temple during this vision. They finished rebuilding the temple. And the people who saw the previous temple, even though this one is incredibly beautiful, this is one of the seven wonders of the world. But the people who saw the original temple that was simple and just made of stone, they wept at the sight of the new one. And they talk about how they sang songs in, in, of mourning about how it contains none of its former glory. Why? Because the Spirit of God wasn't there. By the way, glory in ancient Hebrew is the word kavod, which means weight. It didn't have any of the weight of the ancient. It didn't have any of it. It was just an empty skeleton of a building with a beautiful facade on the outside, but it had nothing of its former glory. And the people were mourning because God did nothing. For 400 and 25 years. At the birth of Christ, we have that word glory again, right? The, the kavod, the weight of God, like showing around the shepherds in the field, like, like the, the way, like, oh, something is happening again, right? So like for 400 years, there's nothing. And then suddenly there's this movement um, of God. And the early Christians, um, the early Christians upon studying, like listening to the disciples who walked with this man, Jesus, for, for, th- for, for three and a half years, who who, who saw his miracles, who sat under him and learned his teaching. All of these disciples um, went and traveled and taught, and the early Christians believed very specific things about this man, Jesus. Um, Paul writes something in particular. He says, the son, of the, Im- the son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, and he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have, suprem- have the supremacy. And in this line, verse 19, is incredibly important. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him. So everything else relies on this last line, God was very, very pleased to have the fullness of, of God rest upon this person. So Jesus now becomes what we never were. He is the face sort of of God in the world. He is the image of God. When he enters into the space, um, you are seeing what God is actually like. And this is what Christianity is about. When we talk about Jesus, when, we, like, when people say, what is God like? We really do point to Jesus, but not only that, We point to the church and say, we are the body of Christ. But that's a really scary thing because oftentimes we're not living up to what we are supposed to be. I would say uh, it's been a while since we have, really. Um, But Jesus was the full presence and image of God in this world. When we think of God and we look at Jesus, this is what we should see. Jesus, um, everything that he does, he has a mind that is completely reconciled to God. He listens to the Spirit and follows the Spirit every single day in every way that you and I were supposed to. He is connected with God in a way that you and I are supposed to be. He um, has, has compassion and cares for people and views everyone equals the same way that you and I are supposed to be, but we have failed at our entire existence. And then Jesus is these things here, as if to say, you can do this too. This is you. This is what, how you are supposed to live. This is how you are supposed to order your life. You are to become Christ-like. You are to become 
Christians, little Christs. This was an insult that they gave him. And that was not an insult to the early Christians. That was incredibly on point. This is what we were trying to be, little Christs. Um, So Jesus was the perfect image of God. And Jesus, on like this very week, holy week, 2,000 years ago, enters into the temple. And for the first time, God's presence is back and things happen. So Jesus is walking up to the city. If you've been with us through Matthew, you'll remember some of this. There are outside of the gates of Jerusalem, there are the blind, the lame, the the cripples, the beggars, just the sick, um, all gathered along the road outside of Jerusalem. Why? Because they're not allowed to go inside the city. Because 1,800 years earlier, uh, King David had made this proclamation that this city is not going to be a place for blind people and lame people. It's going to be like for perfect people who are healthy and, and, and wealthy, basically. Jerusalem is going to be a gl- glorious city, and glory back then, in their mind, was, was still flawed. It was this idea of like it's going to look rich and really super nice. Um, that has nothing to do with goodness and glory in, in the mind of God. So all these people have been kicked out of the city and they're outside begging on Holy Week um, during the week of Passover, um, heading up to the atonement, uh, begging for money from the people who are allowed to go in. And Jesus walks up to them and he sees them and he kneels down and he begins to heal them. And then he invites them, hey, why don't you join me? I've got this big group of people here. We're about to have a parade in about five minutes here. Why don't you hop in the parade line and join us, right? And so people run ahead and they start waving palm branches, Hosanna, and they're walking in. And it's sort of a mock processional because at the same time, remember on the other side of the city, um, Pilate is having his own processional display of power. And Jesus says, well, let's have our own display of kingdom power. It's going to be with the poor and those freshly healed. And we're going to walk in and I'm going to be the king. And he walks, into the, he walks directly into the temple and he starts flipping tables and, and pausing all of the sacrifices. And so now the bloodshed has to stop and he sits down and he gathers all the people around and he begins to teach them about the ways of God and he begins to heal them and make them whole again. And for the first time in 425 years, the temple is what it was always supposed to be. It is made right again. It is bringing life and healing again, not just offering sacrifices and making demands from people. It is now a place that bears the image of God where God is present with his people, making them whole again. That is the entire symbol of the whole thing. And so, we all know the story. He says a little too much truth and he is arrested for it because powerful people can't can't stand uh, less powerful people telling him like it is. And so he's arrested and he's unjustly crucified, uh, unjustly has an has a unjust illegal trial in the middle of the night um, with a bunch of insiders. Um, it's really illegal. And in the end, he's crucified. Um, by morning, the people are coming into the temple to worship and Jesus is walking out with a cross on his back, um, a crown of thorns on his head. Um, and he's crucified and he dies and they enter into their time of, 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 of sort of the absence of God. They're like 400 years in like three. Like these disciples were present with God and now God was gone and they're distraught. But then something happens. Um, Mary goes down to the tomb on the third day and there's nothing there. The, the tomb is open and there's no one there. And the way Ma- uh, John sets this up is absolutely brilliant because John in chapter 20, um, the early readers would have seen this. He connects the entire story of, of Israel like in like 10 or 15 verses, okay? Um, so basically it starts off in a garden, right? And John's really the only one I think that talks about it as a garden. And so Jesus, uh, Jesus is there, right? The presence of God, resurrected, and he's, setting, he's sort of hanging out in the garden with who? Um, with a human being present there in the garden with him and he's caring for her and she's weeping. Uh, and he asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you were looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, 
He just drops that in there, right? Oh, he, he is, though. Like, this is what he's doing. He's building his garden, his temple. The whole thing now is going to be the temple. The whole world is now going to be his temple. Thinking he is the garden, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Okay, so this conversation happens. The gardener setting things up, right? Six verses later, we read something very fascinating. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. So he gathers all his disciples together. John puts all this together really closely together. He he gathers all his disciples together, and Jesus has some words for them about what is now happening, why the resurrection happens, and their eyes are wide, and they're shocked at what exactly is happening right before them because they saw him die, and now he stands before them resurrected and different. And he says to them, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Wait a minute, how did the Father send Jesus? He sent him here to be the presence of God so that we could look at Jesus and see exactly what God is like. Exactly. No question. This is, is what God looks like. And he sends Jesus into it, and, and Jesus says, and I, this is the same way I'm sending you. And then, with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. The ancient people know exactly what this is talking about. This is a reference to Genesis to the ancient temples, to the spiration ceremonies, the breathing ceremonies. God has made now, through Jesus, a new image of himself in the church. And he's sending them out to proclaim and to be the presence of God in the world. He says, and when you go there, when you forgive sins, they're forgiven. If you don't, they're not. Why? Because, because I'm, I'm with you and you are there. You guys, This is what the church is supposed to be. This is the story. God is once again placing his image in the world and he sends them out to show the world what he is like. Our vocation is restored. He has taken us back to Genesis chapter one and the resurrection is vitally important because it is the rebirth of all of creation through the church. We, we have a vocation and a purpose. Our vocation is restored. Our office is reclaimed. We have a role in this world. And to be saved, we throw this word around as if we all have fully always understood it. To be saved is not just about what you are being saved from. It's what you are being saved to. This is what being saved means. Are you with me? Like, this is what this is. It's not just like, oh, I'm free from that burden. No, no, no. Like, you, you have just taken on, like, the grandest vocation of all human beings, exactly what all human beings were created to do, and you now get to do it because Jesus is risen and he's with you. And then shortly after, we have this ascension and Jesus ascends and you're like, well, where's he going? We need your body here. He's like, oh, you've got it. Like, you are now my body. And where the body of Christ is, that is us, the church, where the body of Christ is present, God is there. And if someone needs, um, if someone is in need of healing, the church should be there to bring healing to them. If something is broken, the church should be there to fix it. We are the priests of God. We are the images of God. And when we are present anywhere in the world, God is present there and they should know that. They should see us and they should grasp that. The resurrection has an incredible point. Um, If your understanding of salvation begins and ends at the cross, like so many Christians do, you're missing so much. A lot happened before that and a lot happened after. After that. There is so much more than just the cross. That is like the fulcrum that launched us into this other thing. But the resurrection has a point. The resurrection is also not just something that we tack onto the end of the story to reassure our kids that the story ends good. Like you tell the story and you're like, and he, and he, and he died. And your kids all start crying. You're like, no, it's okay. He comes back. He comes back. You're fine. <laughs> Don't cry, Billy. You're fine. Here, let me put up the flannel graph and you can see, see the, the cave and there's Jesus. Like you can see. He's alive. Um, 
That is not what the resurrection is about. It's not a happy ending tacked onto something. It is the rebirth of all humanity. It is, it is the beginning. We're back to Genesis again, and now we are called to live out as God's people, Jew and Gentile together, combined, to, to bring about God's new people. The purpose of the resurrection was to bring about a people who would embody the full vocation of humanity. It was displayed exactly through Jesus, and it should be displayed through us. And to mirror in the world what Jesus, and therefore the divine, what God, is truly like. This is why when Jesus enters into the temple and he's doing God's work and God's people walk up to him and they have questions about politics and they're like, well, should we pay taxes though? And he's like, what are you doing? He's like, why are you doing this? Here, give me an image of the coin. Hand me a coin. They hand him a coin and he holds it up. Whose face is on the coin? Caesar's. Okay, so, so give to Caesar. Whoever, whoever's image is on the thing, give that thing to that person. If Caesar's image is on the coin, that's fine. And then Jesus says, so give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give to God what is God's and what belongs to God, whatever has his image. That is you. Why have you sold yourself out to these earthly kingdoms and these earthly rulers? Why do you want people to look at you and see your favorite CEO or your favorite preacher or your favorite band or your favorite author? Why do you try to bear the image of these other things? Like that, is, that might be what you want to like live your life like and what you want to be like. That is not God. That is a... Um, that is a graven image. Do not point to that and say, that's what I want to be. No, say, uh, be the presence of God in this world and point to yourself and, and, and say, this is what God has called me to do. When I'm present with you, God is here. The problem is most of us cannot. We can't because our lives are a wreck because we don't understand what God is doing in this world. Um, to be in Christ, which means to be in the church, basically, is, is how really a lot of the, the of biblical scholars sort of interpret this. To be in Christ is to be in the church, which means you have entered in through the cross and you understand what God is doing here. And then Paul says this, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone and the new is here. So reject that old life, push it away, stop living for these other fake idols and understand what you have been called to be. You have been called to be the image of God in this world. Every moment of the day, looking for those who are hurting and gathering them up, all the things that are broken and hurting, gather them up and hold them up and say, here's, here's what, I've, what I have, here's what I've found, and here's what needs healing. And God takes these things and fixes them and heals them and gives them back. And you, and you bring them into the family. And all of this under the allegiance of Jesus and Jesus alone. That's why Jesus is the only thing that should be proclaimed in the church. That's why Jesus is the center of everything that we should be doing. Because Jesus is the full, honest image of God. When we look at Jesus, we see exactly what God was like. And then Jesus says, no, follow me. And so we follow Jesus as we attempt to live lives that are Christ-like and true to what we were created to be. All of this is part of the language of the New Testament. It's part of the language of the Old Testament. Um, the resurrection matters because it creates a new people. You guys, men, women, brothers, and sisters, do you realize that the world, and, and this is a bit of a crisis, the world thinks that Jesus was like you are. And I want you to ponder that. I want you to ponder, I want you to ponder modern Christianity and evangelicalism in general. The world thinks that that's what our God looks like. And that's terrifying 
Honestly, it's, it's not pretty. Um, they think God is hateful and vengeful and oppressive and greedy and selfish and bitter, not forgiving and not merciful. They think he's power hungry and wanting to control the world around him. They think God looks, looks, uh, looks people, uh, they think God locks people up and forgets about them. They think God abandons his wife they th- and, and family. They think God doesn't care about the poor. They think God only cares about a select and elite few and everyone else can just go to hell. That's how people view our God because that's how they view us because that's how we have been living. For so long, the image of God has been forgotten in God's people. And we spend all our time sort of talking theoretically about God instead of being the presence of God. That is what we are called to be. That is what the resurrection is offering us. It is a retelling of all of Genesis and saying, by the way, It's happening again now through Jesus. Receive the spirit of God, be God's people and head out into the world. It's important because there's a common misconception that for all of human history, God, all God has been doing is saving people for heaven so they can fly away. That is not all God has been doing for all of human history. For all of human history, God has always been making an image bearing people for his name and his glory. This is what God has been doing the whole time. And he is doing it now. He's doing it this very morning all over the world. That is what God is doing, and that is what we are here to celebrate. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead has now indwelled you and given you back your vocation and your purpose. Are you with me at all in this? Like, this is huge. Why don't we spend some time in communion? Our, uh, our communion servers can go and gather the elements and spread around the room. Um, there are three elements, in, uh, two elements. <laughs> I'll just add a third. There are two elements in communion. There's bread and there's wine, and for those who are visiting, it's, it's not real wine. I'm sorry. Okay, just so you're safe, you're good. Um, so there's bread and there's wine. The bread symbolizes the body of Christ broken uh, for you. The, the wine symbolizes the blood of Christ poured out for you. Um, all of this is meant to be a picture of how healing and salvation has entered into the world. Um, and then Jesus invites you into this and he says, follow me. And the church lives a life that is I'm going to use the word cruciform, that, that aligns itself with the, with, the, with the path of the cross and allows itself to be broken and poured out for the healing and the salvation of the nations. Um, and from the very beginning, um, the Christians have always looked at those who were entering into the Christian community like Paul, and he says, follow me as I follow Christ. Paul understood his, his vocation. He understood that where he is, the, God, the presence of God should be made known through him in his life as an ambassador. And so this is what this is. This is a reminder of what we are doing here. Now, we have a lot of people, so it may take a little longer to get through uh, communion this morning. It's fine. Be patient. Um, let's spend some time in prayer and, uh, and ponder all these things together, shall we? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place and these people. Guide us into, um, into your path. Remind us of our calling. When people look at Watermark Church, may they see a people who looks through eyes of compassion like Jesus had, people who have hands of healing like Jesus had, people who um, are, are present in their pain and willing to enter into it with them and give sacrificially so that they can find wholeness and healing again. May our doors be open to all who want to join. Um, may our hearts be open to everyone uh, who, who wants to be a part of our family. May we welcome them in and embrace them with the arms of Jesus. Thank you for your son. Thank you for the resurrection. Thank you for all of it. Guide us together now as we take communion. Help us to repent fully and rejoice fully. In your name, amen. Take some time. Talk to Jesus.